Morning, everyone. Thanks to Zach, worship team, always in such an amazing fashion, leading us to the throne of grace and song. Now let's worship in the word, shall we? Before that, I want to take a few moments to share some of the immediacy of what Becky and I are facing as a family, and, and many of you know some things. Um, it's been a time of tumult, if I could use that word, tumultuous times in the last few months for us. Um, Becky's brother, her older brother, is battling stage four cancer, uh, not expected to live very long. Uh, our daughter, our oldest child, is in the midst of a battle with breast cancer. She uh, has a blue sky diagnosis, as, as good as human diagnosis could be. She's in the middle of radiation, but uh, obviously that's been challenging for us as, a, as parents. Uh, three weeks ago, it'll be four weeks this Tuesday, our brother-in-law died. My brother-in-law died. He was lived a good life. He was battling cancer as well. Uh, it wasn't an unexpected death, but... As those of you that have lost family members, you know that the sting is there. And then um, a couple of weeks ago, we got the news that our one of our granddaughters, 17-year-old Claire, had a tumor in her brain. It was a large tumor. So we traveled to Oklahoma about 10 days ago now to be with the family while they were walking through that diagnosis and um, the initial diagnosis was that the tumor was benign, though large, it was benign. And so, um, that was hopeful news. We were cautiously optimistic, but then one day last week, I was with my friends on the golf course of all places. I wasn't playing. I was with there with them. I had one of my youngest grandsons and I got that dreaded call that it wasn't benign after all, but it was malignant in a very aggressive form of cancer. And I will tell you, church, beloved family, I was, I struggled. I struggled with that news. And, uh, it was interesting because in that, in the next 24 hours, um, grief comes in different stages. Those of you that have experienced grief, you, you know that. And, and so I was at a place of bargaining with God. <laughs> like, uh, why, why would this happen to her? Uh, could I take her place? I would take her place if I could. All those things seem noble uh, sentiments. But as I was reading through the word and being reminded by the psalmist that every day of Claire's life, God has already numbered before the foundations of the world were laid. And he's also numbered my days. And so really the danger of bargaining, at least the danger of my bargaining, was that I could have put myself in a position of really wanting to usurp the sovereignty of God. And he is sovereign overall. Amen? And so I was wrestling with those things, and I woke up early the next morning after I received that news, after we received that news, and I was just going through a time in the Word, and I was happened to be reading in the Gospel of John, and, and these words I'm sure are very familiar to you. This was part of my reading that next morning. It's on your screen. It's where Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, 
in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So the language is really specific. What Jesus is saying, he's guaranteeing that we will have tribulation. If you're a member of the kingdom of God, if you're a follower of Christ, you will have tribulation. It's a guarantee. Knowing some of your stories, as I look around the room, you've had tribulation. (laughs) You've had tumultuous times. It's part of the human experience in terms of the kingdom of God, a shared common experience. The word tribulation means distress. It means affliction, trouble, suffering. And so he's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking in plain language. He's no longer using parables. He's offering them words of comfort. That last portion of the Gospel of John is so amazing. He's telling them to take heart. He's telling them what's going to happen. But he's offering comfort. And he says, you can take heart. You can take courage, some translations say. And I will, t- I will candidly tell you that that morning I'm going, how can I have courage right now? This is my grandbaby. <laughs> and then he reminded me once again through his word. You can have courage because I have overcome the world. Overwhelmingly overcome the world. I'm victorious in every set of circumstances. He was reminding me that in his sovereignty, when this little girl was with her parents, they were missionaries in Morocco for eight years, that not one occasion while they lived in Morocco, out in the sub-Sahara, three and a half hours from any medical care, did any of our grandchildren have so much as a stitch or a broken bone. So God was sovereign then, and he's sovereign now. I'm reminded that the psalmist says that God is our refuge. He's our strength. He's a very present help in trouble. We, therefore, we will not fear. And so when I was asking, when we were praying before we got the news of malignancy, uh, thanking God for the preliminary diagnosis that it would be benign and praying that that would be true. And then, of course, when the report came back that, no, that's not it, I was reminded that I would rather have God's no than someone else's yes. And I was also reminded that I can trust her own unknown future. You can trust your own unknown future to a known God. I want to thank you for your prayers, for your love, for your concern. This is our church home, our family. It's been such a blessing. Uh, we love you guys, and we thank you for that. And we, we have that shared experience as we pray with you, too, in the days and weeks ahead. So let's dive into God's Word, shall we? And our assignment today is found in the book of Titus, first chapter, beginning of verse 5. I mentioned a few weeks ago that um, Paul encouraged Timothy not to neglect the public reading of Scripture. And so I'd like to ask you if you're able to stand with me in honor of God's Word. We're, we want to honor His Word, and uh, I'm going to read these verses out loud, and I would invite you to read with me uh, if you so desire. We'll begin in verse 5. This is what the Apostle Paul was telling Titus, his son in the faith. He said, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order 
and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick, quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And Lord, may you now add your blessing to our reading, to our hearing, to our understanding, to our application, to our obedience to your word. In the powerful, beautiful authority of the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So when the Apostle Paul wrote this book of Titus, Titus being one of his young co-laborers, he was giving instructions both to individuals and to the church corporately that Titus was the overseer, the pastor. And this is one of three letters that we call pastoral epistles. The other are the one and two, Timothy. So let's look and see this morning and identify some principles that we see that are applicable to both us personally and to the church as well. And we get some of the context of this letter in that first verse I read, verse 5. Paul and Titus and some other workers apparently had planted churches on the island of Crete. And now Paul's writing back to Titus saying, here's what I want you to do. This is why I left you there. This is what I want you to do to help these churches. Do you know where Crete is? I'm going to direct your attention to this map. Here it is. It's in the Mediterranean Sea. It's the largest of the Greek islands. It's 170 miles long. It's 35 miles wide. Very mountainous terrain. And if you were to go there today, there's between 600 and 700,000 people that live on that island. We don't really know when Paul planted churches here. It's not recorded anywhere in the Bible. Most scholars think it's after his release from his first imprisonment in Rome when Acts 28, what happens right after that. Most scholars believe that Paul was released. He traveled to different areas. Titus was one of his companions. Timothy was. Crete was one of those places that he visited. He planted churches. He left, and now he's writing back to his Son in the faith, Titus, saying, here's what I want you to do. And notice in verse 5, it'll be on your screen. Here's what Paul wants him to do. He says, this is why I left you in Crete. Why? So that you might put what remained into order. So this is our first principle. If you're a note taker, it's in your notes. Good order is essential to good health in a church. So Paul is saying, Titus, I want you to put things back in order. It's interesting that the etymology of the phrase put into order has the word ortho in it, like an orthopedic. Do you know what ortho means? 
It means to make straight. Something needed to be straightened out there. Things were out of order. There were a multitude of reasons maybe why it was order, out of order, but one of the main reasons is that there were a group of people that followed Paul around to the various places that he had visited, the various places he had shared the gospel, the various places that he planted churches, and they were attempting to refute his message. They were discrediting him as an apostle. They were called Judaizers. Paul calls them Judaizers. He calls them in other places false apostles. false apostles. Isn't it ironic that sometimes the greatest spiritual dangers often come from within the church? So they're following Paul around. They're discounting his teaching. They're saying it's not enough to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's good. But there's some more things that you have to do. Some, some were saying you had to be circumcised to be saved. Some were saying you had to observe all the customs of the Jewish faith. You had to observe the dietary laws. There were things you needed to do besides grace to be saved. And as Paul said, that's not the gospel. That's another gospel. And so because of this teaching, it put things out of order inside the church. I find it ironic that the Judaizers, those followers, self-proclaimed Jewish followers of Christ, would attempt to refute a man who called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, <laughs> a man who was the poster child for Judaism, oh, a, a rising star on the road to high places in the Jewish faith and struck down on the road to Damascus and forever changed by the grace of God. Paul describes these people as insubordinate, as empty talkers, as deceivers, strong language. Our pastor, God willing, will talk about this next week, describing these Judaizers, these people. I wonder if Paul ever intended to have this letter read, read by anyone other than Titus. Because in some of these some of, of these next verses for next week, Paul quotes a poet where all cretins are liars and lazy, and Paul says this is true. <laughs> I don't think Paul intended for that to be read. The Holy Spirit had other intentions. So, so let me ask you this. It's like this letter to Titus is like one side of a telephone conversation. It's a personal letter written to a friend, a son of the faith. Have you ever listened to a phone conversation you weren't supposed to hear? Anybody? Accidentally overheard it. Eavesdropped. Reminds me of a guy in a locker room, the story of a guy in a locker room after a round of golf with his buddies. He's changing clothes. There's a phone, cell phone sitting on the bench right beside him, and the phone rings, and he answers it, and he switches on the hands-free speaker function and begins talking with a woman on the other line. And the conversation was pretty loud, so everyone else in the room, all the other guys, could not help but stop and eavesdrop. The woman, calling him honey, told him that she was at the mall and that she had found a beautiful leather coat priced at $2,000, 
She asked him if it's okay with him if she buys the coat. He said, sure, go ahead. Then the woman told him she had stopped at the Lexus dealership and saw a car she really liked. He asked her how much it was, and she said, 90000 bucks." He said, go ahead, buy it. You deserve it. And then the woman said that the house they wanted last year just came back on the market and it was being sold for $880,000. And the man said to the woman, he said, well, call the owner up right now and offer him $900,000 or whatever it takes to get it bought. And then they hung up. And all the other men, his buddies, his golf buddies, they were just in astonishment at this conversation. And then the man smiled and asked, Anyone know whose phone this is? (laughs) Be careful when you listen to things that you're not supposed to hear. But bear that context in mind when we read this letter, especially next week when our pastor brings the message, because some things are, Paul's pretty tough on this, this group of people. So, He's saying to Titus, because there's things that need to be put in order, because this group has followed me around, things are need to be straightened out. This group is contradicting the essential message of the gospel. You need to do something, and it's in the second part of verse 5. Here it is. You need to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This term, elders, is in the plural. It's plurality. That word is interchangeable with words like overseer and bishop and pastor. Those words are all interchangeable. And so what Paul is saying to Titus is the proper leadership form in the church is a plurality of elders, a a group of elders, a group of men. And it brings us to the second principle this morning that good leadership is essential to good health in a church. Paul tells Titus, I want you to go to these churches. I want you to get things straight. I want you to put things in order, and then I want you to identify good leaders. So then in the next three verses, he tells us some characteristics of these leaders. Look at verse 6. He says, if anyone is above reproach, that's a wonderful word. It means to be held blameless both inside the church and outside the church. So look for men who are held in good reputation in the church and outside the church. And then I love this next one. He says, the husband of one wife. And literally that means a one woman man. And the beauty of that is he's not just talking about sexual fidelity and purity. He's talking about emotional purity as well. He's talking about exclusivity. He's talking about covenant relationship. He's talking about the fact that that you're looking for a man who looks as that woman for the rest of his life. <laughs> She's the one. The Jewish tradition, they called it the hoopah. They described an emotional space, not just a sexual space, but an emotional space that existed between a man and a woman, and no one else should get in there. No one. It was exclusive. And then he says, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. There's some problems with this translation. 
when it says children are believers, and here's the problem. Those of us that have raised children, isn't it true that you can raise a child in the same home, same principles, same ways that you instructed them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and they go different ways? Is that not true? Now, we're responsible as parents to raise them in that nurture and admonition of the Lord and to be faithful to the gospel and to... Uh, and by the way, our pastor and his wife are doing a parenting class. If you, if you haven't joined it, join tonight. Great principles on how to raise a child. But who's responsible for the salvation of our children and our grandchildren? It's the Lord himself. He's the one who chooses. He's the one who elects and predestines. I, I'm above my pay grade here. Please forgive me, but I can't explain it to you. But God himself determines the outcome and the future of our children. And our grandchildren were to pray for them and create an environment. And that's what Paul is saying to Titus. Look for men who've been faithful with their family. Verse 7 tells us what a pastor shouldn't be. Look at it. For an overseer, there's that word again, as God's steward or manager must be above reproach. Paul says that twice, which is to really hone in on the importance of a man being held blameless inside the church and out. He says he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. The world usually looks to the aggressive, self-assertive, person for leadership. Do they not? Pulpits are filled sometimes with personality-led churches. But if you find someone who's self-aggressive and who's intense in that style of leadership, those characteristics disqualify them, according to Paul, for leadership in a church. A self-willed man has no place. A church leader should be characterized by leadership that's based on servanthood and humility. In fact, Peter says what he's talking about behavior of elders. He encourages the elders to do this. He says, you guys clothe yourself with humility. Why? Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. The idea of clothing yourself as a garment that's not easily stripped away. It's an intentional act of a man every morning when he gets out of bed. And candidly, this was where the gospel comes in. Because of the gospel, because of Jesus being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, because of Jesus giving up every right he had, setting it aside, his rightful place in heaven, and humbling himself and coming to earth as a man. Because of that, I can make an effort to clothe myself in humility every morning when I wake up and deal with humility with my other brothers, my other leaders. Verse 8 tells us what a pastor should be. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing that the leaders in a church ought to have healthy marriages 
be one woman men to have healthy families, respectful families, well-trained families, to have Christ-like character. As I was preparing for this message, and our pastor and I were talking about this as late as yesterday, when I think about our elder team, I see this kind of leadership. I see men who are one women men. I see men who are held above reproach. They are respected inside the community and outside. I could go down the list of our current elders and pastors and give you attached to them some of these characteristics. I won't do that uh, because I'm afraid I might leave someone out. But but aren't we glad for the leaders that we have? And I'm going to ask you, church, something. Would you pray? Do you pray for your elders and your pastors? Do you pray that we can continue to walk in this way? That we can walk in a manner worthy of the call? Would you do that, please? So in addition to having healthy marriages, to having healthy families and Christ-like character, there's something else that Paul says to Titus that a leader needs to be able to do. And it's this. He ought to be able to teach and defend the doctrines of the faith. Look at verse 9 with me. Paul says, he, this leader, must hold firm. I love this word. It's the idea of clinging to something in the midst of a raging storm, when the waves are crashing against the rocks, when hurricane-force winds want to separate you from the truth, it's a man that holds on. No matter what happens, he's going to hang on. What's he hanging on to? To the trustworthy word, the word of God as taught. In other words, he ought to have a good grip on the gospel. Why? Well, there's two things that Paul says here. He says, so that he may be able to give instruction. I love this word. It's the means that an elder should be able to teach with dynamite power. We get our root word for dynamite. So an elder, when teaching the word of God that he's holding fast to, there should be dynamite power. Where does that dynamite power come from? The Holy Spirit. As he teaches the word in sound doctrine, And also, second thing is to rebuke, to expose those who contradict it. So Paul's teaching that good order is essential, that good leadership is essential, and here's the third principle. The Bible is teaching us today that sound doctrine is essential to good health in a church. We believe that here. We believe that the Bible makes clear what we ought to believe. And we are clear about that sound doctrine. We believe that the word of God is faithful, that it's reliable, that it's trustworthy, that it's dependable, it's sufficient. The word sound in the Greek is the word Hygie, I know. I, I told you guys, I graduated. Thank you, Lottie, right? From Greek. So what, what, we get our English word hygiene from that word. And it, so it has to do with health. So, so don't miss this. It's, it's sound doctrine is healthy doctrine. It's whole. It's not defective. 
It's correct. It's not somehow flawed. It's right. It's not wrong. It's accurate. It's not inaccurate. Sound doctrine is healthy because it accords with the Scripture and with the Gospel. And it produces healthy results in a church. You see what the Apostle Paul is doing here? He's writing to Titus and he says, look, some things have gotten out of order. I want you to put them in order. Here's how you're going to do that. I want you to pick leaders who have these characteristics. I want you to look for them. I want you to focus on sound doctrine. This is not the first time the Apostle Paul was involved in putting things in order in a church. I'm called to remembrance of the church at Corinth. Paul had visited there and actually changed his method of ministry while he was there. Stayed for a longer time, which was new for him. He saw amazing things happen. But through the next few years, some troubles came. Imagine that. They were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. That sexual immorality inside the church. There was abuse of the gifts. Things were out of order. So Paul, in the what we call 1 Corinthians, gives doctrinal instruction on how things are to be, addressing those specific issues, what practice looked like as well. But then he does something in the 15th chapter of that letter, and I don't want you to miss it this morning. If you haven't listened to a word I'm saying, I've said yet, listen to this, please. This is what Paul says to them. He says, I delivered to you of first importance. If you have a paper Bible, circle those words. If the Apostle Paul says something is first importance, we should pay attention, right? First importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. You say, well, pastor, I get that. That's old hat to me. I know that. Do you? The implications of these three statements are amazing. Christ died for our sins. You see, all the sound doctrine that Paul's speaking of to Titus that a, that a leader should be able to teach is distilled like fine wine into this these verses. This is the essence of the gospel. This is the essence of sound doctrine. The reason I'm honing in on this this morning, in a minute I'm going to ask you what to do in response to this, but I want you to know that I would encourage you and, in fact, exhort you to preach this to yourself every day. Why? Because you're a sinner that's been saved by grace. Apart from Him, there's nothing good in you. But yet, in Him, you're a joint heir with Christ. There was a death that was required. There was a penalty that had to be paid. And so when we think about these things, and we, I, would, I would share with you, beloved, that there's not a situation you will face in your life 
that you will not find the answers in the gospel. There will be doctrinal things, and we don't want to ignore those. It's, it's important. But this is first importance. First importance. So what should we do in response to those first importance things? Well, here, here's the first thing I would encourage you to do is believe it. Believe it. Barna's come up with some latest research. Bobby gave this to me yesterday. It was, I, was, I was astounded by this. The latest Barna research shows that only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. 6%. 9% of people that identify as Christian have a biblical worldview. 19% of those who identify themselves as born again to understand a little bit of that terminology, only 19% of those have a biblical worldview. And, and perhaps most alarming is that 21% who attend evangelical churches have a biblical worldview. Now, I pray and I don't believe that those percentages apply to Huddle Bible, but I would say to you this, are there ways in your life that you can expand your belief in the gospel? That you can appropriate those truths in areas of your life? That would be my encouragement to you today. Is believe it. Preach it to yourself every day. Whatever situation you may be dealing with right now in your life, let that gospel apply. See what God does. The second thing we should do in response to that is we should share it. I'm always, look, this is not about evangelism methods. Nothing, there's anything wrong with that. I'm, I'm just talking about your life song, your life purpose, why you were created, why you are a member of the kingdom of God. You're a member of the kingdom of God because you could go make disciples. God has given you a deposit of glorious good news. Why would we not want to share that? And the last thing is be alert to distortions of the gospel. There are some people, and I maybe they're well-meaning, but they talk about unhitching from the Old Testament. So when Paul tells the church at Corinth that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, what scripture is he talking about? Anyone? Old Testament. What if Paul had unhitched from the Old Testament? Ludicrous idea, right? Maybe the intentions are good, but it's, it's a terrible idea. The second distortion I want to point your attention to is, is there's, in this progressive movement called so-called progressive Christianity, there's a growing conversation about the fact that the penal substitutionary atonement aspects of Christ's cross, what I mean by that is that the fact that wrath was poured out upon him, the fact that he was forsaken by his father, the fact that he suffered this cruel, unimaginable death doesn't line up with the love of God, doesn't line up with a loving God. Somehow, some have termed it cosmic child abuse. I would say that in that act, in that moment where he was separated from his father and forsaken by him was the greatest act of love that humanity has ever experienced. It's the pinnacle moment of the human experience. 
Christ died for our sins. He took the penalty, paid, paid the price. What? If you ever wonder or doubt that you're loved, all you have to do is hearken back to that moment. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word, your timeless, unchanging word. Just as the Apostle Paul encouraged Titus to look for leaders, I pray that for the men and women within the sound of my voice here today will cling to that word and hold fast to it in the times of tumult and crisis when the storm is blowing. May they know their anchor holds. Lord, I encourage them to preach the gospel to themselves. The glorious sound doctrine, the first importance truth that Paul speaks about. Lord, that they could know that the gospel in every way will inform every aspect of their lives. I pray that they would hold fast to those truths. And the power and might and beauty of the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You know what I love about that, what that song does is that, and I've shared some of our human experience, our shared experience, where Christ promises tribulation. He also promises victory, right? In the same time. And, and the beauty of this common shared human experience as a kingdom follower, as a Christ follower, is that we have these times of distress. But what I also want to share with you is that during these last few weeks, we shared uh, and celebrated the fact that my wife's father is 100 years old. And he's been faithful to the Lord. It's amazing. And then in the midst of that, our oldest granddaughter, who and some of you know her, some of her story, she's been in some dark nights of the soul. We thought actually we might lose her physically. She's come to faith in Christ. And her life has been transformed. So the Lord has given us our daughter back, our granddaughter back, right? I mean, all of these things point to God's glory. He's going to bring glory to himself and all of these things. Beloved, preach the gospel to yourself. No matter what circumstance you're facing, no matter what you're going through, let the gospel be your shining north star. And as you go, may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you this day and give you his peace. You are loved. God bless you today. You're dismissed.